Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. We talk a great deal about entrepreneurship on this program. Recently, we had Guy Raz, host of How I Built This Podcast, that's listened to by 20 million people a month, which is just 19,947,000 more than my show. I don't know, something like that. (laughs) Guy told us lessons he learned from his show and in his book having to do with empathy and that for the most part, they're just like you and me, which is to say that they're humans with sleepless nights and feel like imposters. They're not superheroes. They're Clark Kent's, and the only difference between them and all of us is that when they went into the phone booth, they put on the cape, and they took the leap. Well, today, we're taking a different leap as we're joined by Barbara Roberts. Barbara is entrepreneur in residence at both Columbia and Hofstra University. She founded and taught many programs for launching companies, as well as supporting established small businesses. She is recognized worldwide as an expert in all stages of entrepreneurship and family businesses. She began her career on Wall Street. I guess everybody does at some point. I wound up as a second career, and I, but uh, anyway, becoming an entrepreneur herself, helping to build, transform, and sell two family-owned businesses FPG International, which is now part of Getty Images, and Acoustiguide, which is now Espro Acoustiguide. After the sale of Acoustiguide, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Barbara, Barbara served for 10 years as New York Chair of Tiger 21, which is an investment group for enhanced results in the 21st century. It's basically a peer-to-peer learning network for high net worth investors. And if that doesn't keep her busy enough, she also served as New York Chair for the Women Presidents Organization. And trust me, folks, there, there's a lot more, but I don't want to make, I want to make sure that your time is well spent as Barbara's been very busy the last six months in one of my favorite spots, Sag Harbor, New York, virtually teaching entrepreneurship, innovation, holding virtual events, and has written some great articles and blogs and share strategies for business owners to navigate the COVID challenge. And some of these have been for my firm, UBS, and we'll link to them when we have the show page. But let me welcome Barbara Roberts to the show. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you, Mitch. It's a joy to be here. Well, I appreciate your time today. And I wanted to start because I know purpose is such a core of what you focus on. So I thought I would start asking you about your purpose and mission. Thank you, Mitch, because I actually, even if you hadn't asked me that as the first question, I never speak without making it clear uh, what my personal mission and purpose is. I also really very much believe that it's very important right now in this crazy time for everyone to be thinking about this. And if you're clear on what your mission and purpose is, I think it's one of the real secrets of navigating what we're currently going through. But basically, since my very early years, I had one purpose, and that was to do everything every day that could help women get their fair share of the political and economic pie. Looking through my younger life, that was what it was all about. But then in the 2008-9 meltdown, I added a second purpose and mission to my life, 
And I ask myself these two questions every morning. Start with what can I do today to help women get their fair share of the political and economic pie? My second question is I ask myself, what can I do today to help someone create a company that will solve a problem, innovate, and certainly create new jobs and wealth? So with those two things as my mission, it was a joy to pop out of bed this morning because those uh, two questions I can see we will clearly be answering in the next few minutes together. I love that. I, I think it's so important to have a purpose. It's probably one of the most important words in the English language. Mission is up there as well. So you, like I, have met and studied hundreds of entrepreneurs. So what do you think makes an entrepreneur? I am an entrepreneur, so I'm mm -hmm. also <laughs> just right. talking about myself. And since 2008-9, when I um, joined Columbia's Entrepreneur in Residence, I started writing about entrepreneurs. And then, of course, I've helped start numerous programs to launch and help entrepreneurs grow. So over my li last 10 years, I certainly have studied hundreds of entrepreneurs. And there's a, about five things that I personally think that someone who is not an entrepreneur sometimes misses. Also here at UBS, I right before the meltdown published a paper called Flight Pass, where I studied six very successful entrepreneurs who had created some wealth, but then went on to take the skills of entrepreneurship in other domains. So it was like a longer study of an entrepreneur's life. Um, so coming out of that experience, my first thing that I really came to understand was that entrepreneurship was really a state of being. It was a lifelong attitude. And I had a sense that if you were meant to be an entrepreneur, if you were had the skills of entrepreneurship or the bias or the mindset, this is something that you cannot stop and it's there for life. The second thing that I really have come to understand is that entrepreneurs love a problem. It's not about the solution. It's not about coming up with the uh, idea that nobody else can come up with. What you see about an entrepreneur is they are absolutely in love with the problem that they are driven to solve. Um, the third thing that I think is really misunderstood, particularly with what's on the media and newspapers, is I have never met an entrepreneur that started a company to become rich. When I do public talks, this is one of the things that I think I can see the audience kind of gasp in two sessions. I can always tell the entrepreneurs in the audience because all their heads are shaking yes and I'm seeing everybody else in the audience gasping that they don't understand it. In my mind, entrepreneurs are like Van Gogh. When Van Gogh was painting Starry, Starry Night, he didn't say to himself, oh, I have to put in more blue and then it's going to sell for $10 million more. He was driven to paint. And that is what an entrepreneur is about. The fourth thing is an entrepreneur has a total bias to action. It's the idea of just starting and doing something one of the people that I focused on in your, the UBS Flight Pass paper was the founder of 3D printing industry, Bree Pettis. And he and uh, his partner of a while ago wrote something called the Cult of Done Manifesto. 
And this is something that I'm obsessively spreading the word about. If you Google Cult of Done Manifesto, you will come up with 13 little sentences that are really about just get something done, move mm. life forward. And then the last thing that is very important to me when we talk about entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurs are totally foreign to the concept of failure and perfection. And it, it's very clear to me after studying entrepreneurs and innovators for the last 10 years that you cannot be the first person to do something the first person to come up with your solution, if you care or even have the idea, a concept of failure, or if you are driven that you have to do things perfectly. The pursuit of perfection in my mind is the biggest thing that holds people back on what they're meant to do. So those are kind of my five mantras about entrepreneurs to get us started, Mitch. And I, I will get into it, but boy, every every single one of those, I'm just thinking of so many specific stories throughout history that, that just, boom, that's exactly, could have nailed it better. Thank you. It was a great, great, great answer. So we've spent the last six months forging a new normal. So what are your thoughts on this current challenge and how does... I guess this pandemic compared to other crises in, in the entrepreneurship and business world. Obviously, this is <laughs> unlike anything we have lived through in our lifetime, unless we were alive in 1918, but uh, <laughs> most of us weren't. So, yeah. yeah. I, it's very interesting. First off, yeah, we're going into the seventh or eighth month. I know we keep saying we've been living yeah. like this for six months, but it yeah. actually yeah, another, it's longer. Another one or two have gone by. Um, you know, uh, those of us who are in the New York area certainly recognize that March 16th was the day that we closed tight in this area mm-hmm. of the country. I was asked immediately to start going on Zoom calls for various business groups, chambers, and whatever to kind of give some perspective about what I was seeing. The reason for that is I did run a company during the time of 9-11. I did run a company and started a lot of entrepreneurship programs at the last meltdown in the 2008-2009 timeframe. I then was also asked to write for UBS for your business owners magazine. So on June 25th, I wrote an article, which your listeners can get through UBS, on chaos and entrepreneurship. So the first thing that I recognized after the first or second time that I spoke back in March was I was thinking that I could talk about what I had learned from running a company through the crisis of 9-11 and the meltdown of 2008-9. But I quickly came to understand that this was totally different. It is not crisis management. In 9-11 and 2008-9, we saw a bottom at some point. We had a feeling that the worst was kind of over and it was a point that we could pick up from. Also in 2008 and and 9-11, we could go to school, we could go have a drink with a friend, we could go to a sports event, we could listen to live music. It was extremely different. So I have been calling this situation chaos management. And one of my biggest points in chaos management is that absolutely every aspect of our life has been permanently changed and in this creates incredible opportunities. So that is kind of my big 
message that I really tried to spread is we are not going back to anything anywhere pre-March 15th. And this is chaos management, not crisis management. And chaos management, absolutely no one has the answer. And it really is, again, a time in my mind that you have to ask, what is your purpose through this? Why were you put on the planet? And this is the time that asking yourself those questions, you really can see your opportunities. Chaos creates unlimited opportunities. Without a doubt. I mean, it's a daunting word, but it is it is the right word to explain what we've gone through. And, you know, like you said, eight months later, I still feel like it's March. It just doesn't make any sense to me. The other word that I think about a lot is resilience, which is trying mm-hmm. to find a way around the chaos. And I guess it was Fareed Zakaria uh, who's coming out with a book already. They're coming out with books called After the Pandemic and, you know, thinking about the future, which, you know, is it too early to be doing that? I mean, because I, I guess I would ask you what advice you'd give owners to capitalize on opportunity via innovation to get started. Yeah, I have been thinking about this as chapters And so I think we're in the book and it's a book. Right. And so I kind of think like the first chapter back there in March for business owners was a chapter of survival. Business owners found themselves just checking where money was coming from, how much money they had in the bank coming in, seeing what money they could get from government programs, thinking about where they're going to work, should they be getting out of leases, renegotiating bank loans, Do were they keeping all their people and whatever. It was just survival. Right. Over the summer, I saw that entrepreneurs were trying things out and they were testing things and they were very much living in the present and it was more, let's just see what we can do. I certainly, in my conversations with business owners and my, my clients I work with, I'm beginning to see that with what I'm calling the emerging going into the ascending chapter, that particularly, I think as we were in the summer, we had some hope that there would be an end potentially before the election or when kids got back to school in September. I think now most business owners are accepting that we are not going to have any idea of how the world looks probably until well into next year. It's also part of businesses to always look at the next fiscal year about this time of year. So I absolutely do find that business owners are thinking about what have they learned so far as they put together budgets, plans, and thoughts and strategies for 2021. Questions are, is what did you start doing this summer? Are you going to continue it? Is there something to build on? What did you stop doing is even more important. Is it ever going to come back? And most important, it's extremely important to be hugging your customer, to be talking to them, to be finding out what their current pain and problem is and how you can solve it. Um, I would say those are kind of the basics of coming out at this time, Mitch. And that, you know, when you think about it on, on just the, on a human basis, it makes so much sense. It really, really does. And not everyone gets that, but the companies and the businesses and whatever they you do for a living, if, if, if you are accomplishing that and not necessarily making big changes, but continue to 
service your customers in whatever way, um, I think it goes a long, a, a long way. Are people reinventing? Do you find a lot of that? Could you give maybe an example of some reinvention that you think already is is taking flight? Yeah, my idea on this, Mitch, is even something bigger than reinvention. I am doing a lot of webinars for business owners of all sizes and stages with the key idea that in effect, every business is starting from scratch again. And so looking at some of the models that we use now in academia on how to start a business, if you think about it, every single question that's the basis of business has to be re-answered. So when we do startup weekends or we teach a week-long startup course at Columbia or whatever, there's three pieces to it. The first is really, again, getting focused on why you're in existence, what is the problem you're solving. And no matter how old your company is, it's time to ask that question. It's also time to ask the question even for people who are professionally working. What is the meaning of your work now? How does it change? The second thing is we use something called the business model canvas, which is anyone can download. And it's a one page document that just asks nine questions, which in my mind are the nine questions that every business owner should be asking at any stage, whether you're thinking of starting a company or your company is 10, 20 years old and you're coming out of this. You have to ask what the value is. You have to ask who exactly is your customer. How have they changed? Most important is how are you going to build a relationship with your customer now in this digital age? How are they going to find you? Marketing is like overwhelming. How do you market to people in this digital age and exactly how you make money? And then on the other side, the operations side, it's a time to really be looking for strategic partnerships, asking yourself if the key ways you worked in the past still work, What kind of people and resources do you need now that we're going more in a digital world? And then absolutely, it's a time to look at your costs. I mean, many people have had some disruption in revenues, but if you start to build a budget for next year, one also will discover that you possibly have really cut a lot of your costs. So again, my message to all business owners, it's time to ground zero, pretend you're starting your company again, Start it, you have your lessons, but be careful to not be holding on too much to the past. It is, as you know, going back to your basic question, it is extremely important time for us to be talking about the future and stop talking that we're going to return to February of this year at some time in the future. We should be thinking about what do we want even into 2022, 23, 24. It's an opportunity for us to just reinvent everything and and just really cherish that. Yep, absolutely an opportunity. And, you know, it's interesting when I I read through your work, I know that you are certainly not a fan of the F word, which in business stands for failure. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to talk about that a little bit because... Really, and we both know this, that it, it's just an opportunity. And that's how setbacks really are the key to eventual success for so many entrepreneurs. You know, we start with the guy inventing the wheel. I mean, you know, I'm sure, you know, he, he, he kept getting it wrong. So 
and you talked earlier about the obsession about solving problems being really the basics there. But just talk about that a little bit, because I know that particularly yeah. that's 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 <laughs> nails on a chalkboard for for you. Yeah, and, it's, yeah, and, and I love that. I love that. Even your, we, sometimes we think of ourselves as imposters. So imposters, setbacks. I have to say, I don't know that for me. And I've had some things that happen to me that people say, you know, okay, so, you know, somebody, a client fires you or, you know, some nonsense happens and I kind of, you know, I, I just like shake off and I laugh about it. And I said, okay, they're lost. Okay. It's just, exactly. You're right. Just, um, you know, I, you know, I think optimism is probably something about entrepreneurs that doesn't get talked enough. I think optimism is more important than resilience I know that for some people, it's really annoying to be around entrepreneurs and people who totally believe, even when things don't quite work out as they had hoped, they're just driven just to keep going. It can be a negative that an entrepreneur doesn't really have a reality check on what's happening, but it is part of our psyche that everything that happens, good or bad, is about learning. It's about getting clarity. I would say we love change. I personally can't stand things the same day happening twice. I love chaos. So there is something different about that entrepreneurial spirit. But again, I really think that just about every human being has had to learn how to be an entrepreneur in the last seven months. There is some problem that every person had to solve in the last seven months that they had absolutely no idea they were capable of solving in February of this year. And it's so exciting that people are learning about themselves that in even this horrible bad time, Everyone is talking about some of the positives that are coming out of it and are be seeing this mixed blessing. And so I, I, I love that the right. entrepreneur mindset or whatever is really touching just about everyone on the planet right now. Yep. Now, if I was writing a book, I'd call it Silver Linings because um, yeah. I really think there's so many, so many there. So one, one of my favorite parts of doing this show at the end of the day is is hearing stories. I love stories. I'm a storyteller. I was so fortunate in working with Larry King when I was younger and and would hear just incredible stories from the likes of James Michener to Jimmy Carter. Doesn't didn't matter really, but there's always just incredible stories. And I, I know your story includes the likes of Bill Gates and Mark Getty, who eventually bought your company. So Maybe, you know, the Reader's Digest, and not every listener knows when I say what that term is, it actually was, you know, it means like a, a smaller version, <laughs> but a Reader's Digest version of that story and the journey, really. So let me just focus on the FPG story. Um, yeah, Mitch, is that what you're saying? for a yeah. second, yeah. Okay, so um, FPG stands for the, free, the Freelance Photographers Guild. It was a company that was founded in the 30s, and it actually was originally primarily outtakes of Life Magazine photographer. So uh, I, I hope all of your viewers at least know what Life Magazine was. Yes. Well, was. I have a wife that works at Time Magazine and one of my favorite things is when she first started there and they would was bringing life back and getting to be in the vault and see the archives of Life Magazine and, uh, God, that was a, just a wonderful. It was, and it, it also was the uh, you know the time of basically analog photography that right. people 
didn't have we didn't have technology to fix things. Okay, but the so, photos that were taken during that time by the Eisenstats of the world are the, 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 the just those photos. You don't need to write a book about it. You don't need to make a TikTok about it. You could just look at that picture at Iwo Jima or whatever it was, and it's or 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 little you know John F. Kennedy Jr. standing there, you know, with the wave. It's it's yeah. Just, yeah. It was yeah. It was it was it was way it was photographers waited to see. It was about light and seeing. Now there was some manipulation in the dark room that people learned how to use chemicals a bit. But but and also the idea that reality is black and white, of course, is not real. But so it, it, we have a whole conversation about photography. Sure. But anyway, so um, basically, the a man who founded this company uh, passed away and left this company to his uh, three daughters and his wife. And they, one of the daughters was actively running the company and she had had um, a guy come in to help her run it. It didn't work out. Someone suggested she should look for a woman. So one thing that I'm a real big believer in is that women really do help each other. She just searched for me through some of the women's networks. I love photography. I came in, I knew nothing about it. But if I think about my career and all the phases, there's two things that I've come to understand. One of the secrets of being successful and having the solution to the problem at the right time is to hit two trends simultaneously. And so one secret of the success with FPG was in 1990, only white people were in commercial photography. 1990. If you saw an ad for beer, cigarettes, a car, financial services, you only saw white traditional families and uh, usually Northern Europeans. And so I I lived in New York and I saw the streets. And I also, being someone devoted to improving the image of women, I really wanted to start a stock photography company that showcase really what America looked like. So first off, we started pre-photographing groups of people from different races working together. We pre-photographed incredibly imagery of Black, Asian, gays, older people, heavier women. And we, we allowed advertising people to test concepts using these photos. I'm extremely proud that we won a major award in the Clinton White House being honored for really showing the true face of America. So when so I, far ahead of so far ahead of your time. I mean you know, I, I think of you know I mean, he wasn't, but I will say, you know, I you know, the photography world at that time was a white guy space. And yes, it was. when I when I uh, was invited to speak at one of the first photography conferences and I was talking about that this is what's going to be my strategy. You know, I mean, oh, that's so nice. Pat her on the head. This is a nice, you know, thing to do. And of course, we exploded. Um, and uh, many of the photographs that we took made our photographers millions of dollars in credits and licensing. So that was the first thing. The other thing that I also recognized was that in 1990, if you were going to launch a new product you primarily did an advertisement on the three major television stations and maybe some of the new cable stations. And you probably did a print ad in the middle of the print time magazine or life. That was your marketing campaign. But again, as technology came and I began to see what was happening in desktop publishing, 
I also came to recognize that this idea of pre-photographing iconic images so that people could develop ads very quickly without the $100,000 cost of a photo shoot that we could build a business on. So basically, we created the first really cutting edge archive of iconic kind of photography. At the same time, Kodak came to me and said they were interested in what's happening in the digital world. So with Kodak, we created the first technology that put photos on the internet. And 3M came to us with the idea of putting photographs on CDs. So in about 1993-94, we were part of the first people to put photos on CD-ROM. So that was what caught uh, Bill Gates' attention. (laughs) Um, And so coming into 97, um, we had grown the company from about 4 million in revenues to close to 40, 45 million, um, just selling photographs online, all girl owned company. So Bill Gates came and was very interested in having me help him with his company Corbis, which was similar. Mm-hmm. Um, his values, in my, that's a whole conversation. Sure. We can take an hour on my yeah. 25 hours with Bill Gates. <laughs> at the end of the day, his win at all costs values were not consistent with mine. And there had been some ill will already in the photography world where he was trying to not treat creative uh, fairly. So I said no, because it wasn't my values. And then the other thing that happened is Mark Getty actually studied my company and the stock photography industry as a thesis when he was in business school. And so he came up with the idea that he wanted to roll up all of the photography and film and stock footage companies and create Getty images. So um, he was also one of the first bidders on our company when it when it came up for sale. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's 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 just so it's such a wonderful story. And I, I, I think of today's version of that being, I guess, Humans of New York, which really kind of started on Instagram and has created, you know, all of these fascinating photos around New York initially, but showing the world a very, very different picture than Mad Men did uh, and that that entire generation. Actually, I watched the Pete Souza special the other night about the Obama White House and all of the photos that he did. It was just oh, that magnificent. Was fantastic. It was I it love, was oh, that, that, oh, oh, that, amazing, yeah, right? that was that was really oh. one of the one of the great things that I've I've watched in, in, in months and months and yeah. certainly recommend that. I think it's on Hulu as well. And it's 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 just fascinating. And the photos that he took and and he had worked in the Reagan White House and he was just without getting political, just comparing and contrasting White House photographers. And okay. and, and he also, you know, uh, as a, uh, follow him on Twitter and he yeah. uses yeah. His old photographs in very interesting political. Yes, he does. Yeah. Very, but very clever guy. Political. But we won't go there. But. My colleague, Tracy Burns, is going to do a show with you more on this topic, but I just I, I can't have you here and not talk a little bit about how you are helping women get their share of the economic pie and creating new yeah. jobs and wealth. If you had to kind of summarize that up briefly, that what you're doing today. Actually, with your colleague, Tracy, I'm going to focus more on women entrepreneurship. So it's a nice companion piece to that. But Thank you for asking this question, because I have to tell you, I'm pretty concerned right today, but maybe just to give a real fast history on this issue. I have all my writing about women and economic development 
women born in the United States after World War II, and I'd love to highlight this because people don't focus on it. We are the first women in the entire history of mankind to have the legal rights, the financial rights, and the educational rights to create our own wealth and make our own destiny. We are the only ones. I also, it's, I, think, I love this time to set, take a moment to re remind people how fragile and how new all of this is. I started working on Wall Street in 1969 until November of 1968, the New York Times had help wanted men and women. In my life, I was the first woman in every single job I took. Um, the, you know, the EOC was started in 64, but it took until about 72 until that was eliminated. Women it took an act uh, in 1974 for us to get our own credit card. But the one thing that I really like to highlight it is it took an act of Congress in 1989 for to make it illegal that a bank did not need a man's signature if a woman wanted to open a commercial account. So this idea you know, that we women entrepreneurship, I think, is one of the most positive, exciting mm. and, and the main thing that I'm helping to happen. But it, and I like to remind people it's only 40 years old. I will say, and I don't know the solution of this, I'm extremely concerned about what's happened on the women's front during the COVID crisis. I think McKenzie and Lean In got a lot of press this week on a report that they have do annually. This is the sixth year they did it, a women in the workforce. They reported that potentially 20% of women at all stages from startups to C-suite are thinking of leaving because of the total stress of having the extra hours of taking care of parents, family members, children, and whatever. Statistically, women are have an extra 15 hours a week to be handling all this extra stuff that's come on them. So women, that we are losing 20%, potentially 20% of women was very concerning. It even added to my concern that the last unemployment numbers, 800,000 women, had filed for unemployment, only 200,000 men have. So that full further documentation. So if there's any message here, it's yeah. guys, please help us. Yes. <laughs> What a what a statistic! Oh my God! Um, and and it, and it is yeah. No, I, I I had I had read about that. I think New York Times had an article last week, and it's it's just upsetting. And and you were talking about women bankers. I have a very close friend, Neil Godfrey, who's written books on kids and all. Money. She's one of the first women bankers at Chase, and and she and I have talked about that for many many years. She's um, one of my colleagues at Columbia, actually. Oh, she's an oh. executive. She's an well, executive. Neil, uh, Neil, yeah. Neil, Neil is actually one of my just a coincidence, but really yeah. she's she's part of my family. I mean, that's yeah. just all I could say. We we've been we've been very very close for since I first met her when I had my radio show in the mid nineties. Um, with her first book and we, we uh, she's something else. So I forgot she teaches at Columbia. It makes perfect sense. Um, so before I let you exit, let's talk about exiting. For many entrepreneurs, businesses are their babies. I mean, if, if, if you want to be an entrepreneur, your business better be your baby. Doesn't mean ignore your babies, just 
better be something that's special. So I, I was thinking about this when when uh, we chatted the other day, and I just you know wanted to talk about it a little bit. And, and it's a family that I happen to know, uh, the Feld family, um, and they owned a fun little business with elephants and clowns uh, <laughs> called Ringling Brothers. And I knew the patriarch Irving Feld through my years with Larry King, but coincidentally. I also know the whole family in another way, which I'll say. But Irving Feld sold Ringling Brothers to Mattel, and he became one of the most miserable and ill men within months of this happening. Um, And shortly after he passed away, his son Kenneth bought the circus back, and he spent the next 35 years building an empire way beyond Ringling Brothers. So when they had to close the circus, which was, I think, a smart business decision. Um, His daughter now and his granddaughter have this fantastic business involved in all forms of entertainment. And again, I know these people personally, which is why I share this story. Kenneth Feld married the daughter of my parents' closest friend. So I've known them for so many years. But there was a kind of, it's kind of a long walk around the block to ask your take on how you guide people on exiting their business and maybe find a new chapter to translate their passion for their business into some new journey. Because so many entrepreneurs, they go into this clinical depression afterwards. I've had, you know, three kind of big chapters in my life. My first chapter was, as we chatted before, was working on Wall Street. My second chapter was becoming a serial entrepreneur. And then my third chapter was writing, teaching, speaking, coaching, uh, consulting, board service for privately held companies. This last chapter began 12 years ago when Columbia's Entrepreneur Center had hired someone with a huge grant to write a white paper on what happened to entrepreneurs after they sold a company. And the faculty person who was the lead on it had this paper and it bothered him. So he asked me to kind of take a peek at it. And I started scribbling all over it. It was very clear to me that the writer had absolutely no sympathy for what was being told to her. And I looked at my own life and I realized that after I sold FPG was absolutely the most difficult time in my own life. I did have some death in my family, which certainly made that worse. But I also noticed after Acoustaguide, when I sold that company, I also had a very difficult time. So I spent three years studying the art of renewal, the art of adult development. In 2008, Columbia asked me to redo the whole paper, and I published a paper, Life After an Exit, in 2008, and was recognized as the first person to really talk about how difficult a time an entrepreneur could have after a sale. In that paper, I interviewed 30 men and women who had sold companies at over $10 million to $1 billion, and whether it was a man or a woman, they all said to me, I had sold my baby using the same language that you did, Mitch. And all of them were so happy to have someone really talk about and listen. And all of them talked about that the first 12 to 18 months to two years after the sale was extremely difficult. What I recognize now is that all of us understand the difficulty of an entrepreneur because all of us, again, on March 16th or so, 
abruptly were told you couldn't do and work the way you were. So what I've learned is that work gives all of us three things. And whether you're an entrepreneur who's going to sell a company, just sold it, or whether you're someone listening to this podcast who had to change how they work, your work, first off, gave you your purpose of getting out of bed in the morning. Second, it gave you your community of people. And third, it gave you the structure of time, Mm. of how you use your time. And if you look at an entrepreneur, all three of those things are in an extreme. As I've said over and over again in this, your company is your purpose. Solving the problem is your entire mission. If you're a morning person and you're an entrepreneur, nothing happens in the morning, you structure your time. It's 24-7, your business is there. And most entrepreneurs the people they know best are somehow connected with their business. So when an entrepreneur sells a company, those two things are drastically cut. Even, I would say, more deeply than all of us have felt as we've kind of adjusted out after March 12. So recovering from that is really to find answers to those three things. How are you going to find your purpose and meaning after the sale? Building a community of people before or after a sale that is beyond those you know from your business and starting to fill up your time. I personally believe that entrepreneurs are going to have a less hard time now after they've come out of COVID because I think, again, COVID has changed, uh, forced a life change even for entrepreneurs that they've been staying home, spending more time with family and true friends, how they're spending their time, they're rethinking. And I think all of us, as we're coming out of COVID, are thinking more about our ultimate purpose and mission as we get through this. So, but those are the things that I think all of us should be thinking about at this time. Right, excellent. So I'm a pretty curious person. And when I do my research on my guests, every now and then I kind of pick up things that might not, necessarily be on topic, but just sort of strike a chord with me. And I noticed that you have this passion for farming and for farmers and maybe businesses around farmers. And um, I guess as uh, the, the segment on Saturday Night Live used to say, what's up with that? <laughs> well, well, first off, um, all four of my grandparents came from Lithuania. So there's an agricultural spirit in all of them. Two of my grandparents ended up being silk weavers in Patterson, New Jersey, but my other two grandparents did have a chicken farm and agricultural center, I think near you, actually, I think you're in New Jersey, actually, it was in Caldwell, it was where the old Curtis Wright manufacturing uh, Mm -hmm. facility is near you. So in my childhood, I definitely, during the week, tended to live with my um, silk weaving grandmother. And during weekends and vacations, I definitely lived on the farm. So I grew up loving farms. As I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm looking at my garden and whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's part of my genes. My journey on being, but interested in farming is my main home is in New York City, but I but my, I'm sorry, my second home is in New York City. My main home is here in Sag Harbor. And so I have been very involved in the um, east end of Long Island of really trying to preserve our farm. And I would also say the Bay traditions. Uh, It's important to me to protect the Bayman. It's also important for me to protect even the wineries out here. Very few people know that Suffolk County is the number one agricultural county in New York State. So I did serve on the Suffolk County Planning Commission and help with that. But 
My main kind of connect with my other work is helping people keep farms in their family and also really being an activist for good land uh, policies that really make it hard for our limited farmland, particularly on the East End, to be converted into McMansions. Mm -hmm. Um, Keeping farms local, I personally believe, is an emergency kind of thing we have to do. We certainly have seen this incredible disruption in weather and certainly keeping as many local farms in New York. If there's any dislocations and sort of disruptions, uh, we really need our food sources here. So I do a lot with the Community Preservation Fund to help raise money to buy farmland and lease it back to families. I work with families just to how you structure so you can keep it. So that's my passion. Well, thank you so much for that work that you do, because it really it really is America is farming. And I'm actually I'm actually more concerned about the fishing industry right now and the warming of the ocean. You know, yeah. We, yeah, we've had, you know, I have an oyster garden in front of uh, in mm-hmm. the body of water and, you know, that the water in front of my that I'm looking at right now mm-hmm. is not frozen for the last two years. And I, you know, for the first time in my life, we have tremendous disruptions happening with, uh, you know, the warming of the planet. So it's yes. a big It it certainly is. And we spend a lot of time on that in the sustainable investing area. And we've done some shows on vertical farming and and certainly in climate change. And again, we could go on for forever. So it's kind of become a tradition to end my show using a great question that Tim Ferriss poses to a tribe of mentors in his book. So Barbara, you are granted a giant billboard some magic genie comes and says you've granted this giant billboard where you can send a message to the world that you feel very passionate about. I know this is not an easy one, but what would it be and why? And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I've said this now to, to a lot of guests, it, it could be a number of things and there's no right or wrong answer. That's certainly for sure. Just not political on this particular podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you you gave me the warning on that question uh, yeah. like a little bit early this morning. That's the kind of question that I like the night before so I can Oh, sleep. you're very lucky. I have not given that warning to many people, so. Okay. So I, I have like a huge things here. First, I think my first thought was I would put on the billboard Brie Pettis's 13 points on the Cult of Done manifesto. So that, that would be one thing I would do. And um, <laughs> again, I urge your listeners to download the Cult of Done manifesto. We will link to that on when, the show page. When I forced my, and it's, he's all, it's also in um, our flight pass paper that UBS Perfect. published. Well, we will certainly okay, be so linking to that. that. And also the Business Owners Magazine you should link to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I got my, myself down to three. Okay, um, in my earlier life, Whenever I spoke, I always closed every single talk with do what you love, the money will follow, which I think is okay, but that's an early life thing. In the middle years of my life, I always closed with the only way to know the future is to invent it yourself. What I'm feeling today, I want to close with is laugh at perfection. It's boring and keeps you from getting started. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. That. That is a billboard that well, you've got three great ones, but that is certainly one I would stop at and really admire. And, and Barbara Roberts, uh, thank you, first of all, for taking time today to share 
all of your experience and wisdom. And as I said, we're going to link to all of these great articles and white papers and everything that you have done here at UBS, which is certainly well worth the read. I've been sending them to my clients for, for a while. And, and, and I know my audience has learned really a great deal tonight from Barbara. As I said, my colleague, uh, Tracy Burns, who now has her own podcast, will talk also with Barbara and we will be linking to each other's shows. Because Tracy and I go way back because she used to interview me when she was... Uh, on television. So we have a lot of, a lot of history. I want to thank also the folks at Resonate Recording for your great post-production work. And I want to really give a special shout out to Bianca Benedetti-Fang and James Jack at UBS for really kind of bringing this light to me. And you are this wonderful light on a cloudy day in New Jersey and a foggy day in Sag Harbor and really arranging this episode that uh, I can't wait to share. And remember, as we say every week, I guess this is my billboard. When saving for your financial future, pay yourself first. Barbara, thank you very much and have a great week. Thank you, Mitch. 